2: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 243 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the well-travelled, but
0: now home, Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm I'm back, Val. Yes. I'm here, everyone. Hello to everyone, and thank you so much to Dean for keeping my suit warm thank you, for Dean. me. <laughs> I shall have to talk like this. I am not even gonna attempt the Kiwi ah. accent because he tells me that you've attempted the Kiwi accent and it hasn't gone well. I so do it I'm gonna stay away from the that. time.
2: <laughs> do you really? Yeah, because they think he talks funny. But in a nice way. In a nice way. <laughs> but oh, look dear. do tell us about Canada. How was it? And like I was watching I mean, looking at all of your social media posts and honestly, the whole country looks like it has been photoshopped that it it does
0: not look real it doesn't does it like it's an incredibly it's a ridiculously good-looking country I will say that all of you Canadians out there you um well but the part the part I saw which was BC uh is just unbelievable and I've been led to believe that the rest of the place is uh pretty similar um in the sense of ridiculously good-looking as well but in different ways I um Yeah, it it was just extraordinary. We had an amazing time. We went to – we spent some time in Vancouver with some friends and um, Book Boy was loving Vancouver. It's got that sort of laid-back, hipster vibe thing, that kind of sense of – coolness about it that's um really attractive when you're 14 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or in fact any age at all um yes. so that was amazing and I actually went into kids books in Vancouver which is an incredible children's bookshop like just amazing um and science books so there's awesome. some, some Mapmaker chronicles books there which was terrific it was so lovely to meet them and just you know to see your book in a bookshop on the other side of the world yes. is really quite extraordinary mm-hmm. um and the boys picked up some uh, some books while we were there and one of those was called The Skeleton Tree um, by a Canadian author whose name totally escapes me. Uh, I'm sorry about that if you are the author of that book. Um, but it was uh, recommended for um, for Bookboy Junior who is 11 and he absolutely loved it, like just wow. loved it. okay. Um, so that's a recommendation then? So, that is a recommendation. Uh, let me just have a little look at who wrote that so that I can give you the correct information. Uh, it's by a guy called Ian Lawrence, who I believe is a Canadian author, um, and it's a survival story. So if you are, you know, in the market for book, books for boys, you know, in that sort of area, or girls, whatever, you know, whatever floats your boat, um, just he loved it so much and has moved on oh, to hatchet cool. um which is his next move obviously we're going through a survival phase at present. um yeah, so we did that which was ter- <laughs> which was terrific um and then we got in the car on the wrong side of the road and the wrong side oh, of the car which was various yes. um and did you, drove did up you
2: and- adapt very quickly to the other side of the road
0: well we um so the builder did the driving we decided that that was going to be safest all round because you know i'm 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 what you'd call not an enthusiastic driver. I do drive um, a lot more than I used to and I drive long distances these days but I don't tend to drive on the wrong side of the road and the wrong side of the car and the boys agreed that, you know, that would be would be safest if we left ourselves in the hands of the builder who lived in Canada for a few years, many years ago. So he's at least, you know, done it before. Um, and uh, it was just really funny because when we got into the car and uh, we were right in the middle of downtown Vancouver, and we decided that the best way for us to manage to get ourselves out on the correct side of the road was for everyone to shout, Al on the footpath every time we turned, right? So that would just remind <laughs> the builder that I had to be on the footpath side of the road because I was in the passenger seat. So every time he put the oh. indicator on, there'd be this chorus of, Al on the footpath. <laughs> oh, my God. To keep oh. him on the – because it, it – it's like it's a really – it's actually kind of mind-boggling. You're, you're so – you just don't even realise how ingrained you are with that kind of stuff. Yes. But even just walking on the left side of the road, getting on the yes. left side of the escalator, like all of that kind of stuff is so instinctive. And just which direction you look first when you cross the road and all that mm. stuff. Anyway, so that was a bit fun. But, the, yeah, we went up into the national parks and we went to Jasper and we went to Banff and just extraordinary – Like so beautiful and so inspiring because it's um, quite a different landscape to obviously um, the Australian, like quite a different landscape to the Australian landscape and just um, incredible. But hilariously, the builder is a mad photographer of inanimate objects Mm -hmm. as opposed to me. I, I like photos of people. He likes photos of mountains. So we must have eight thousand photos of mountains, none of which he's ever going to remember the name of. But anyway, we've got we have wall to wall beautiful photos of mountains. You can't take a bad photo. That's the other yeah. thing. Like you, All you've got to do is kind of point your point your phone in the general direction, and yeah. um, and up comes this incredible photo, and everyone just thinks you're amazing. Like everyone thinks I'm an amazing photographer. <laughs> when in fa- when in actual fact. I just don't think I could have gone wrong if I'd tried, you know. So, yeah, it was amazing. So, are you going to go right back? Um, to Canada? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Not at this stage because, you know, with a family holidays type of situation, we do try to go to different places and we Mm. were discussing, you know, where our next thing might be. Um, Mm. and I think we might maybe head to Europe next time. Just, you know, like I like to mix it up a bit. I'm not someone who goes to the same holiday house every year. You know, it's not my, it's not kind of how I operate. Um, I'm always interested. I am actually quite fascinated by that, by that.
2: Why well, the, the whole, people who whole. go to the same place every year? Because they know what to expect, I suppose. They had such a good time last time they wanted to replicate yeah, that. Yeah, and,
0: and holiday houses are beautiful things and there's often a whole range of relationships that spring up around them as well, which is yes. a different you know, part of it as well. But um, yes, no, I, I think that I will be um, – I like to get my creative inspiration in, in different places. So mm. um, usually we're just in Australia, you know, Canberra. So so Canada was quite a change for us. (laughs) Canberra's very inspiring, I'll have you know. Um, Okay, sure. The the landscapes around Canberra. Um, Yeah, so but yeah, look, it was a wonderful, wonderful time and the Canadian people are incredible. A big shout out to all our Canadian listeners and thank you so much for having us. We had a terrific time. It was really good. Canadians
2: gave us Ryan Reynolds. Need I say more? No, I needn't. So okay. there you go. I'll move <laughs> well, on. Apparently, so apparently you were very you, no. <laughs> you were very near uh, a a USA listener called Tabarnes, or maybe it's T A Barnes. Hmm, mm-hmm. That could be T A Barnes, uh, who kindness left who kindly left us a review on iTunes. And they've said, as an aspiring writer, I have sought out resources to help lift my craft to the next level. I came across Valerie and Al and was hooked instantly. I have since backlogged and started listening from episode one. They do not disappoint. They are insightful, witty, and informative without being condescending to new artists. They are an inspiration to other women by being kind and supportive to each other in a society that is lacking in such support all too often. I love this show and will continue to listen as long as they care to broadcast. Oh,
1: Wow. That's
0: fantastic. Thank you that? so much. That is a lovely, lovely, lovely review. Yes. Thank you so much. Lovely. I'm so thank glad you. that you get that feeling of support. Thank
2: yes, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so mm. much, T A Barnes from USA. Al could have waved mm. to you
0: while she was in Banff or wherever she was, Vancouver. Well, I, um, I was waving because we were quite wa- near to that US border and you know Mount yes. Washington is there looming away. Like like it's it's a that's a that's huge. Yes. Um, just looming away over the border as we were driving down the freeway. So that was. Yeah. It's yeah. I did. Sounds I have like to confess I did, adventure. I did get a little bit of mountain fatigue towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know, is that is that like when you
0: go to you know Europe and you get church yeah. fatigue or yeah castle fatigue yeah very <laughs> nice. similar because you it just it's um it's kind of like when you're you're trying to take in. When you live there, I think they almost become wallpaper. But, you know, when mm. you're there and you're trying to take it all in, like all at once, like you're, you know, you're trying to have the whole Canadian experience, like, you know, everything from maple syrup and beaver tails, which the boys mm. discovered, you mm. know, right down to, like, to the, to the, obviously, like the builder with his 8,000 photos of mountains. And um, mm-hmm. I just got to the stage and he was like, that's ridiculous. And pull over to the lookout to take it, to take another photo. Wow. And I'd be like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to look through the windscreen. That's
2: yeah. what Show just me going, on the Discovery I, Channel. You
0: know, I just, <laughs> and then I felt terrible. But it was admittedly like we were into about day 20 by that stage. So, you know, it was, yes. I was was okay with my mountain fatigue by that point. But Now, did you do and any you work while You hiked a lot.
2: Away? Oh, sorry. You hiked a lot. Sorry.
0: I, yeah, I was I just hiked asking.
2: Did you do any work or like writing or thinking about no. writing? Did you get any inspiration that you started oh, writing I did that. down while you were away?
0: I did that. I did thinking about writing. As I said, mm-hmm. we did a lot of hiking, a lot of thoughts. Yes. We went, there was a lot of active bear watch going on and there were signs, you know, that said if you are on this trail, you need to make noise, you need to walk in a tight group of four. I'm going to – I'm going to the building. Do you think we should be out here? Like, we really have no idea what to do if there is a bear. He goes, yeah. we're not going to get it. We won't see a bear. The the, the the track will be crowded." He says to me, "Right? Sure. We get out on this track, and within about I don't know, 25 meters, we've disappeared into it's the the thing that actually got me about Canada. Like mountains aside, was the um the trees, the dense the denseness of the trees when you're up in oh. those um, national parks is just incredible. Like I, I was really quite Overwhelmed by the trees, I, I loved mm-hmm. them. I think I probably got more inspiration from the trees than I did from the from the mountains in a funny way. But anyway, we're on this mm-hmm. track and we've kind of climbed over boulders and we found ourselves in you know, a fording streams. And there's no one around. It's like really quiet, like quiet enough that you can you know hear the birds tweeting and the rustling in the in the in the you know undergrowth. And I'm just like, we're gonna die out here <laughs> because it's soon. The, the chance of there actually being a bear was pretty small. We had seen yes. four bears the day before though, four, four bears oh we saw. Like people go up to those those national parks and don't see a single thing. We saw yes. four bears. Um, so there were bears. And I'm sort of walking along thinking I, I don't know that I want my life to end here <laughs> on, a, on a wilderness track with a bear. I'm just not sure. <laughs> you, your mind does go to funny places when you're out there.
2: Yes. Well you're back safe and sound, so obviously mm, a bear sorry. did not get you. So no, that's good. That's good. Shall we move on no to the world care. of writing and publishing then? You
0: probably should, because this is not so you want to be a bear watcher. Or Canadian. Or Canadian. <laughs> the Canadian right. The Canadian Travel Log Show.
2: <laughs> All right. So I have a link that was in the writing cooperative and it's called it's by somebody called Karen Baines. And it's called about uh, – it's called How I Sold 7,000 Kindle Books. Now, whether you think 7,000 is a lot or a little, that's completely relative and that's completely up to you. But obviously, Karen is an independent author and she has put together some tips uh, because she feels that a lot of the independent authors that she speaks to, who, you know, uh, publish on on Kindle, on Amazon, um, themselves – only sell maybe a hundred books or so. So seven thousand is a lot in her books. And also, you may remember we also um, interviewed another indie author who was earning, who had some great tips as well. And he was uh, uh, earning over a hundred grand a year as an indie author. And he was also doing some of these tips. So some of the things that Karen says, which is um, which I think are important. And it's not one, ever one single thing that's going to make you a success. It's a number of different things done together. And one of the things that she said is release more than one book. That was also the advice of the previous um, uh, indie author whose name escapes me right now, um, but it will come to me in a minute. Um, uh, because if somebody likes one of your books, they can – then download more. They can buy more. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that she mentions is write linked books, which is, of mm-hmm. course, like what you've done. You've got mm-hmm. the Mapmaker Chronicles. There's four in that series right now, the Adabad Cypher. There's two in the series right now. Um, and, in fact, my friend Soph came over yesterday and she was talking about, uh, she has a son who, um, you know, is into reading. In fact, her mother has a secondhand bookshop. Um And I said, oh, my goodness, Luke would absolutely love these two series and so she's going to go off and get them. Oh, yay. Go Luke's (laughs) mum. Yes, go Luke's mum. All right, so write linked books because then if people, you know, like the first one, they're going to want to know what happens to that character moving on. So very, very important. I think two really useful um, tips if you're an indie author. Another mm. one is get some reviews, you know, and you think um, that's
0: important too, don't you, Al?
2: Whether you're in indie I or do. not, quite
0: frankly. Yeah, any kind of author. I just think that um, there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, obviously, it helps you um, be discovered on Goodreads and places like that if people are reviewing your book for you. So, you know, if you, if you read a book and you love an author, one of the best things that you can do for them is to give them a review on Amazon, on Goodreads, or even, you know, on your own blog and share it. And from an author mm. perspective, the great thing about that is that it um, allows you a book review. Um, because often book reviews, don't, they don't necessarily all appear on the day that the book comes out, right? And in fact, it yeah. actually works out better for you if they don't in many ways because what it allows you to do is to continue the conversation about the book, um, as time goes by, so if somebody reviews the book, you can tweet about that. You can say, you know, thanks so much for the great review on Goodreads. You know, insert name of person, and then link to that review. Yes. Or, you know, if somebody reviews you on their blog, you can share that review on. Um, you can share that review via your Facebook or via your other social media. You can um, uh, put a little excerpt of that review on your own website, which I do. I have a page for both the Mapmaker Chronicles and the Adaband Cipher, um, and you know, reviews that that are you know obviously like the really great ones I have to say I'm pretty excited about the fact that I don't have any bad ones but um the great reviews in particular I like to um put a little excerpt on the page um with a link to the full review so that people because you know it's like anything um if you haven't ever heard of an author and you haven't ever heard of a book the first thing you want to do is find out what other people have said about it right yeah To get an idea if it's going to be something that you're going to like so those kinds of things are so important um from a, from, a, from an author's perspective, like, and if someone does take the time to write a review for you, then do share it, do thank them, do, you know, do those things. Don't ever respond. Um, I never respond on Goodreads or anywhere like that um, because that's, you know, can lead to a very slippery slope. So, I mean, mm. you know, like people are going to give you, um, you know, one or two stars because the book is not for them. So, you know, so be it. That's That happens. It's, it's just all part of the whole um the whole life of being an author everything that you write is not going to be loved by everyone and so that's something that um you know, it's really important to take into consideration. But reviews do matter to authors. So yep. if you are a reader and you, um, you do actually want to show your appreciation of how much you like the book, then do consider a review on Amazon, on Goodreads, you know, or, you know, on your own blog or whatever because um, it, it does matter. It really does. And it, it, particularly in this world of where discoverability of books is so difficult, like it's, yeah. it's, it's um, you know, it's one thing to write the book. But the other thing is to get the book out there so that people know about the book. And word of mouth, of which reviews are an important part, is, uh, is such an important part of that, of getting that, you know, helping an author to get that word of mouth happening.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that uh, indie author I was talking about was Brett Battles and he was oh, yes. episode 216. So make sure you check mm-hmm. that out if you want more advice. Now, mm-hmm. one thing that's been going off, lately, Al, has been Furious Fiction. And Furious Fiction for August starts this weekend, if you're listening to this podcast as soon as it drops. It starts Friday the 3rd of August. Now it starts at 5pm and you have 55 hours until midnight Sunday night to complete your story of 500 words or fewer. There's lots of F's in this. Uh, Mm. Last month's stories were great. They were an excellent mix. So So head to the Furious Fiction fan page to link to these stories and to join the fan club to be notified when the challenge goes live. Now it's free to enter and free to join the fan club. And what happens when you join the fan club So um, and you do that by going to furiousfiction.com.au, you'll get an email that will give you the parameters of uh, what you need to do in your 500-word story and at 5 p.m. or thereabouts you will get that email and it'll tell you you know whether you have to include a particular word or whether there has to be a particular theme or whatever and it's uh, it's really great fun there are so many people who are entering purely because it's great fun and of course if you win you win $500, which is probably makes it one of the most lucrative short story competitions in Australia. Mm-hmm. So make sure you join. It's it's, it's uh, awesome fun. Remember, go to furiousfiction.com.au. Now, we have a competition this week, another competition where you can win one of three copies of the new book, Happily Never After by Jill Stark, so not happily ever after, but happily never after, which is a beautifully written, insightful memoir, and what it means, or doesn't mean, to have your happy ever after. Jill Stark was living the dream. She had a coveted job as a senior journalist, she was dating a sports star, and her first book had just become a bestseller. After years of chasing the fairy tale ending, she'd finally found it, and then it all fell apart. Jill is an award-winning journalist and author with a career spanning two decades in both the UK and Australian media. She spent 10 years on staff at The Age, covering health and social affairs as a senior writer and columnist, and now works as a freelance journalist and speechwriter. Her first book, High Sobriety, was long-listed for the Walkley Book Award and shortlisted in the Kibble Literary Awards. So make sure you enter your to win your copy of Happily Never After, go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, I know that you have been hanging out for this part for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I'm going to put you out of your misery. Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, Val,
0: you know, I've been dreaming of this moment for four weeks now. I have to I say. I thought so. I I'm thought so ready.
2: Okay. Okay. Yep. I will not disappoint. The word of the week this week is atavism. That's
0: A-T-A-V-I-S-M, atavism.
2: Have you ever heard of that? Have you ever
0: used it? No. I can honestly say no. When I first kind of heard it, I was thinking it was like Avatar. But no, it's not. It's atavism, which is no.
2: Activism. Yeah, well, not. it sounds a bit like activism, but it's not. So according to the Macquarie Dictionary, this means the reappearance in an individual of characteristics or uh, from some or more or less remote ancestor that have been absent in intervening generations. So basically it's something that has appeared in an individual that maybe wasn't in their dad or, or you know, some of the generations just immediately above that person but in a previous ancestor. So you, mm-hmm. if you, to use it in a sentence, you might say, Bill was alcoholic just like his great-grandfather. Or you might say humans born with a tail have an atavism from primates, Pre- presumably if those primates had tails. So yeah, atavism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I reckon we should. It's, do an, like it's this. an
0: interesting one because it's a red hair. Uh, you often see it's actually something that you often see with red hair. So it's actually an oh. interesting subject, quite close to my heart, really, or my there head anyway. You go. Yeah, because you do often see it because you need the two um, you need two submissive genes to get red hair. So it can often look like it's jumped several generations before it kind of appears again.
2: Yes, yes, mm. that's right. Mm-hmm. Oh well, there you go. atavism. Yep. Y- you might be able to use yourself in a sentence.
0: Well, use oh, or at- not. <laughs> <laughs> use yourself in a
1: sentence <laughs> Sorry, yourself so wrong yourself.
2: <laughs> everyone knows what I mean everyone knows what I mean <laughs> we all know what you
0: mean all right um, I think I'll pass if that's
2: okay okay so let's move on to our writer in residence this week now we ha- oh this is a I read this book and I thought it was awesome and I knew I had to interview uh, the author. So the book is called Whiteley on Trial, uh, in reference to Brett Whiteley, and the author is Gabriela Koslovich. And Gabriella, Gabriella is an arts writer, but she became really, really um, fascinated by this particular story um, about an art fraud in Australia. And it is a page turner. I, when I I first actually heard about it, um, I think there was an extract in Good Weekend or something and it really piqued my interest, um, which goes to show it's important to get extracts out there because that's how I first heard about it. But admittedly then, you know, life got in the way and then it won the Walkley uh, for Arts Journalism. It has been shortlisted for the Davitt Award because it is essentially a true crime book. And uh, I had a good old chat with Gabriella about Whiteley on Trial.
3: Gabriella, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Valerie. It's great to be speaking with you.
3: Now, for readers who haven't read your book yet, now, I have to say, Gabriella, I picked up this book and I read it in one sitting because I literally could not put it down. And when I had to make my lunch, I had to, you know, I had the book in front of me and I was like shoveling food into my mouth as I was, as I was eating because I couldn't take the words off the page because it was so compelling. So number one, congratulations on such compelling
1: book. Thank you. That's really, that's really good to hear because it's not necessarily an easy topic
3: yeah, it's not an easy topic, but it was very, very well treated the way you did it. So just in case there's yes. some readers who haven't read the book yet, can you tell them what it's about?
1: Yes, it's about one of the most extraordinary alleged art frauds uh, that have ever come to the courts in Australia. And it's probably the most audacious um, case of alleged art fraud, and it involves uh, two well, actually there were three huge paintings that are believed to be fake. Uh, and they were made in the style of one of Australia's most famous artists, Brett Whiteley, who died in 1992. And so these three paintings were sold for, um, you know, millions of dollars uh, to, to 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 people in Sydney with um, a lot of money to pay for them. <laughs> uh, and the case, the book basically... Uh, looks at this case and follows it through the court system uh, through a jury that convicts two men of art fraud and then this um, their conviction the jury's conviction is overturned by an appeals bench now i know this case intimately because i was writing about it in 2010 when i was a journalist at the age newspaper and um, long before it got to the courts it would be another uh, 2014. It would be another four years or so before the men were um, uh, charged, and it would be, you know, another, you know, it was 2016 when they were brought to brought to court. I know the case intimately. I have very firm views about it. So this book <laughs> takes the reader through the case with me guiding them along and I'm glad you said you you read it in one sitting I always intended it to be for a general audience I never wrote with an art expert audience in mind or a legal expert audience in mind definitely not legal experts because I'm not a legal expert and I had as a journalist I had never covered the courts Uh, but that's what made the law so interesting to me to see this other world. I was very accustomed to hanging out in art world circles. I feel very comfortable there. But entering the courts was something else. So all the characters and the systems and the rituals jumped out at me. Um, and one of the best compliments I think I've ever gotten was from my mother, who, you know, um, we're migrant, working, uh, migrants from Italy. She left school very early. She's certainly a very intelligent woman. She read the book and she said, Gee, I was expecting it to be really boring and really dry, and I loved it. I read it from the beginning to the end, and it was fantastic. And I thought, well, that's great. If, you know, if she can enjoy it, anyone can enjoy it. And that's not to underestimate her intelligence, by the way. It's just that it, I read it with a general audience in mind
3: it's definitely appealing to a general audience because it has all the elements of a soap opera. It is astounding. And it's a great example of truth is stranger than fiction. Now you've got, there's so many colorful characters and so many interesting twists and so many mysteries and, and Mm -hmm. hidden pasts that uh, I think that it's, it's definitely interesting for the general audience and, And yet you had to include a lot of the, um, you know, legal stuff in it for it to be an accurate representation of the facts. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Mm. as you say, it occurred, I mean, the story unfolded in real life over a period of time, um, Mm. years, many, many, many years. At Mm. what point did you think I'm going to write a book
1: as soon as I found out that these two men that I had been writing about well actually it was only one man I was writing about because the other one had always been rumoured to be involved as soon as I found out that the two accused had been charged mm-hmm. and that the case was coming to court to the to be heard at a committal hearing I just thought I've got to write about this and right. so that was 2000 and the end of 2013 And I got straight. And I was go on. No, no, you go on. Yeah. Hello. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. So that was the end of 2013, Um, and I was no longer with the Age newspaper at that point. I was editing Gallery magazine at the National Gallery of Victoria, Um, and I ended up leaving that job because I really wanted to follow this case, and I knew that I would have to. It would take a lot of time, so I left. Um, and started freelancing as a journalist. And um, and the first thing I did when I found out that the case was coming to court was approach Melbourne University Press. And the reason I approached Melbourne University Press was that one of my former editors at The Age, Sally Heath, is now, now executive publisher there, and I have great respect for Sally Heath's skills. And I had worked with her at The Age, and I thought I'm going to suggest to her that we... I'm going to pitch a book. And she loved the idea and she said, now you've got to pitch formally, you know, I've got to present it to the board. The whole of the publishers have to like it. Um, and she presented it to the board and I was very lucky, accepted it and wanted a book. So as soon as I saw that these two men were, were being going to be tried or possibly tried, um, I jumped on it. And the reason for that is because I had been – writing about this case and these uh, suspicious paintings back in 2010 and I just thought, sorry, it was 2007. It was 2007. And I just thought, why has it, why has nothing been done? Why haven't the police looked into this? What's Mm. going on? So as soon as it came to the courts, I thought, wow, is there some new evidence? What's happening? And I, having Like knowing all the characters, I knew there Mm. just had to be a book in it. Um, And I sat through the committal hearing and that's when I was convinced there was a book in it. Uh, And, in fact, it was after that. It was after that. Sally Heath said to me, sit through the committal hearing, see if you think this idea's got legs. I sat through the committal hearing in early 2014 and then I pitched the book and it was accepted.
3: So, it obviously required a great deal of commitment because you left your job to go and follow this story. If, for example, the Melbourne University Press didn't go for it, would you have been that obsessed that you would have followed it anyway or or left your job?
1: I I really don't think I would have. I wish I could say, yes, I would have followed it. And I probably would have followed it, but I'm, I'm not sure that I would have had the courage to write a book. I really, it's such a complicated case and there's the threat of litigation. One of the accused had, um, in fact, sued me before when I was at the age and writing about uh, this case before it got to the courts. So I really needed the backing of um, a publisher. I needed the support. I needed to feel safe, as safe as you can when you're writing these kinds of um, books. Um, and frankly, also as a journalist, I need a deadline. <laughs> I kind of need—I need an external kind of some, whip, someone that can whip me from out, you know, from outside. I need—I'm pretty disciplined, but there's nothing like knowing that I have to deliver a project to someone that someone is expecting something from me. And when that person, you know, is someone such as Sally Heath, who I greatly respect and admire, I wanted to also make sure that I delivered the goods and that they were good for her because, you know, I value what she does. I value the role she's played in my life as an editor at The Age. And I just needed that external push and support. Uh, So, yeah, it it was a kind of big decision to leave the National Gallery of Victoria at um, at the end of 2014, so I could then mm. follow the, the committee hearing in March 2015. But um, you know, I'd been there for a year and a half. I'd revamped their, you know, their gallery magazine, and I was ready too for a change. So if the book proposal hadn't come through, I would have um, freelanced. I would have just gone back to being yes. a journalist and yes. freelancing as a journalist. But, yeah, answer okay. to your question is I doubt I would have taken it on. I really needed NUP's backing. Yeah. I needed it. I needed it, yeah.
3: So I'll come back to the book in a minute. If we can just go on a sideways tangent and talk about how did you get into arts writing in the first place?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. I always wanted to be an arts journalist. That had always really? been my dream. Yes. Well, not Well, from the moment that I got into journalism – I, you right. know, I loved the arts. I, when I was a kid, I, you know, I drew and I painted. And in fact, when I got accepted to do a postgrad in journalism at RMIT, the other thing I had applied for at the same time was in the visual arts. And I can't rem- remember which tertiary institution at this point, but I was accepted to do that as well. And decided, you know, perhaps I'm a better writer than you know, artist, um, and I went down the journalist track, and also that was only one year post-grad. Uh, so it, the arts have always been an interest of mine. You know, I, I studied dance when I was a kid. I played classical guitar. I did all these things. I was a dabbler, and, of course, I, and I just loved artists. I thought they were the best things on the planet, you know, creative people. They're so inspiring. Um, so my first job, as a full-time job as a journalist, was at the Herald Sun. And um, in Melbourne, and I was a you know a general reporter, a health uh, reporter, an education reporter, and all I wanted to do was write about the arts. But in newspapers, that's kind of considered not that you know not that important. Um, they just wanted me to write news, hard news. That's where yeah. the important stuff happens. And you know I understand that. And it was when I left the Herald Sun to work for the Age that I finally got my chance to be an arts journalist. Um, and the editor who, um, the then editor of The Age said to me, what would you like to do? And I said, I want to be, I want to work on the arts. Um, he said, okay, fine, great. And, you know, most people think, what? Why would you do that? That's such a, a stupid career move. It's not where, it's not where the, um, you know, where the kudos is. And yet I just followed my passion. And uh, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to write about the thing the thing that I love, the things that I love. I want to talk to people who write and make um, dance and theater and film and all these wonderful, you know, the best things in life are the arts, aren't they? The arts and food and wine, I think.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And, but uh, I think that uh, it, the arts is certainly where some kudos is because we have to say congratulations because you have been – this book, your book, has been awarded the Walkley for arts journalism. So that's, you know,
1: incredible kudos. Yes, that is, um, so, that is so good. But let's remember that this is the only, only the second time the Arts Journalism Award has been awarded by the Walkleys. It started last year. All through my career as, a, as an arts journalist, you know, all the you know decades that I was an arts journalist, there was no separate um, category for arts journalism in the Walkleys. There's one for sport, there's one for <laughs> lots of other things, not art. So I'm really thankful that the Walkleys um, are now recognising arts journalism. It's so important, um, not just for me for winning, but I mean, there were you know some of the the other finalists in that category created great work and you know I encourage your readers to get online and look at some of their work. Um, I just think arts journalism needs to be better recognized in this country. Mm. Well let's circle
3: back to the book and um, you decided I'm going to write a book, I'm going to follow this story and you attend um, the committal hearing, which is what they have before they have the actual trial. So it's like yes. two separate major events in, in this story kind of thing. So
1: yeah, the committal hearing is when you when you decide whether there's enough evidence to take the case to a trial. Yes. Mm. And
3: when you're sitting in court uh, witnessing all of these things play out and, and hearing all of these stories from so many different people, on a practical level... Can you describe whether you had some kind of system or routine or, like, did you sit in the same place or, or a place that had the, a good view? Did you, were you, did you have to take notes? Were you allowed to bring in any recording equipment? You know, just on a practical level, how did you yep. capture the information and the colour?
1: Okay. Um, yes. All right. So... And the the trial, by the way, went on for five weeks. I was in court every single day of those five weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so I would – let's talk about the Supreme Court and the trial there perhaps because that's where most of the action happened and that was the most intense part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, five-week trial. Uh, Yes, there's, there's media seating. And I would often go to the the same spot and that was because it was closest to the judge and closest to the front and therefore best viewing and best hearing. And yeah, and then you feel safe going back to the same spot. Yeah, when you're doing this kind of stuff, routine is very helpful. Uh, So I I would always sit there. Um, You cannot record in a court. You can't photograph. You can't take in a tape recorder. Uh, What I had was... Notebooks, of course, which I love. I love my notebooks. Uh, And I would take notes throughout the court case uh, and I would sort of of the most important parts because I'd then go home and read the court transcripts. But they are, you know, thousands of pages, hundreds of pages. Mm. I needed to know exactly what I wanted to find. So as I was taking notes, I'd have a separate notebook near me making notes of the the highlights. Must Mm. get this quote. This is great. Blah, blah. So I was sort of already very alert to what was going to go in the book, what I needed to go back to. So you and do
3: notebooks going at the same time? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. but
1: one, one, one is you scribble everything in there and then the yeah. other one you take really concise, must-get-this-quote where he says, you know, yep. uh, all the, the juicy stuff. So just to, yep. just so that I would know what the main – like one was of main points, one was of everything. Yes, And – um. And I think I brought my highlighter in. <laughs> I just, uh, I, so it's, and also, always aware of what people are saying. So I'd be having conversations with people and they wouldn't see me taking notes. But as soon as that conversation was finished, if they had said something really funny I'd, or interesting or provocative or whatever, I'd write it down. So I was always on alert. And um, I shouldn't be saying this because it's like giving away my secrets and (laughs) people will never talk to me again. But, you know, writers writers are like that, aren't they? They're sort of eavesdropping. When I was a kid, I used to always fantasize about becoming a spy and I guess this is kind of a little bit like that. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Um, But it's very intense. And, And during the court case, not only would I sit in court, But then at the end of the day, after a very long day in court, I'd have to come home and I would just, in this flurry, write everything that had happened that day in a very rough draft of a story because I had this intense deadline. My publisher wanted the book, you know, like a couple of months after the trial finished. Hmm. So I knew there was no chance of meeting that deadline unless I wrote every single night. Of course, then we got we had the appeal, so it was all postponed, mm. um, but not for that long. And then you know there was the, the appeal to look at and um, things to check and so forth. Um, I think I've yeah I think I've answered all those elements of the question that you so that you... you
3: you mentioned the appeal. So basically, um, the the court case is done. There was a verdict and then at some point they you find out that there's going to be an appeal did that like was that an anticlimax did you that wreck your your momentum and your publisher's momentum no no,
1: no we all no we always knew these two men would appeal they um right. uh, said they were not gi- they they said they were not guilty from the start they were not mm. going to they were always going to appeal. In fact, we knew that they would appeal on the very day that they were sentenced. And um, Mm. on the very day that the jury made its verdict, it was clear they were going to appeal. Um, What, I mean, what happened was it just, well, we we, we were tossing up whether we could legally publish before the the appeal. Was it possible? And, our extremely excellent lawyer, the publisher's lawyer, said no. That is way too risky. Um, you know, there's there's a chance that the verdict would be will be overturned, and if we go to press um, and they're acquitted, it's just going to be too risky. True. So for me, it was just it was this limbo, this feeling of oh, I've got to mm. wait, I've got to wait. Mm. But, but I had so much to do. So they they were acquitted uh, in April the following year. Um, but of course I was writing up on, we were all, you know, it was September, we were almost September, 2016, we were almost ready to go to press. And then our lawyer said, no, we can't do this. So we had to wait for the appeal, which happened a lot earlier than I expected. Uh, and what was, what was the, the most difficult part was, um, when the appeals bench, Overturned the verdict and the two men were acquitted. Because then I thought, oh my God, can we actually publish any of this? Can oh. you know, have we still got a book? Is any of it uh, publishable from um, a legal point of view? You mean yes, from a legal right. point of view. From a legal point of view, can we do this? What are we, what are what, what are we um, at risk of if we publish in terms of defamation and so forth? And um again I worked very closely with the uh lawyer and I was very um encouraged and by the fact that we were able to use most of what I had already written. There were only a yeah. few things that had to be cut out, not much. Some of my favorite some of my favorite quotes and things went, but it wasn't <laughs> much. The, the tweak was very minimal. And the reason for that is because I had been writing it. As it was happening, so the whole story is told as it happens to it, yes. you know, in a in a sense. Uh, except from the very beginning, where I sort of it's a sort of a, sort of flashback. Mm. Um, and also, I make it very clear from the beginning that the two, the two men were acquitted. Mm. So mm. that was that. The day that 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 that, they, that it was clear that you know the jury verdict was quashed and that the appeal judges said no, um, these, the jury made a mistake. <laughs> that day I thought, oh, golly, have I got a book? Have I got a book mm-hmm. or not? And in fact, yeah, ha- yeah, no, it, 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 it made it a better book. It's a better with book because – Well, with the fact that you've got a jury that says there are too many guilty yeah. and then a bench say they are not, well, what's the truth? Yeah. That's the thing yeah. with the book. What is yeah. the truth? And yeah. I take the reader through it and I think my, you know, I, I lead them through and then it's, I think it's sort of clear where my biases lie <laughs> I'm very open about those. But the, the jury, uh, sorry, the reader has have to make, the readers have to make their own opinion. It makes it a the book because, because it's such a mystery, because it's such a, yes. um, it's not clear cut. Your so biases are
3: clear that you did offer a lot of restraint as well without
1: going full yeah. on. Oh, absolutely. Who wants to read some? Oh, for sure. I think restraint is really important and I think yes. understatement and allowing your readers, you know, the space to make their own decisions is important. But also, nothing is black and white, you know. Uh, and the art world certainly isn't and, and the accused are um, fascinating characters in their own right. And, you know, they're it, it's very... It's not easy to – you can't just say this person is bad and this one is good and it's not that simple, not when you're talking about the arts and not when you're talking about the selling and buying of art, you know, Uh, and that's also made it interesting. I didn't simply want to write a book where it was like that person is the devil and that person is God. (laughs) I mean, who wants to read that? I'm not interested in –
3: Apart from the, the legal considerations of whether you had a book or not, um, you had to acquaint yourself with quite a number of legal aspects by the mere fact that you were um, you were following a trial, and yeah. by and also by the very specific technicalities of how they why they were acquitted in the, in the first place. So was that hard? To, because it's, as you say, you weren't a courts reporter. What did you have to do to understand? The, the legal aspects of the trial itself
1: it, um, it, well, I had some great um, people that were helping me in the law. Uh, there was one um, particularly I have to say tom jey who's a, tom jersey q c who was involved in the committal um, he was the for the prosecution but didn't see it through to the trial. And he was a very good person that I would um, talk to when I wasn't clear about elements of the law and he would point me to um, cases that I should look at or websites that I should look at. Uh, And in the end, I just got so immersed. I was fascinated by it, by this thing that, I had always taken for granted. You know, we we all do. We walk around and we know the sort of general idea of the law and the courts and innocent until proven guilty. We know all of that. But to actually see it in action, to see it in action, in practice, was um, really eye-opening and fascinating to me. And it started to, I started to question You know, we we think about the law as being this objective thing, but, of course, it's open to interpretation just like the art, just like art is. Yes. And and that's what fascinated me, that it's not, that it too is blurry and um, has many facets and depends on the interpretations of judges, uh, appeal judges, you know, and so forth.
3: Because you have written about the, the whole art scene in general um, mm. throughout your career, you knew a lot of stuff uh, that happened to some of the characters involved yeah. in the past. Yes. And also, you know, you, you went to the committal and you heard every word at the committal, but there's certain things mm-hmm. that, that A, ha- that you know about, that B, um, that you know about just from experience, and B, were discussed at the committal but not allowed at the trial – At any point were you just desperate to go, but what about this bit? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) What about that? Constantly. Oh, look, you know, I had to stop myself from getting angry with the defence barristers. Hmm. I just, I used to, the way that they would twist the story really irritated me. And I, I had to remind myself they are doing their job. That's what they are there for. They are there to ensure that everyone has you know has a fair trial that their clients have a fair trial but um so many times I just wanted to say to the defense barristers what are you talking about that's just rubbish you know that's not true um Mm -hmm. just lots of I'm not sure if I should have said that but I mean I I kind of do it in the book anyway I just Mm. do it in a way that's um above the law, let's <laughs> just say, yes, that's true. not going to get me in trouble or, or have me, um, you know, get a writ a, a for defamation or whatever. Uh, but, yes, there's lots of, and there's still lots of stuff that I know that that isn't in the book yes. um, that I can't talk about. Um, there's things that I've found out since writing the book. Right. There are, you know, there are many things that, yes, I would love to say, but, one can't one can't, because um you know one has to be fair and one has to yes write and speak within what is allowed by law i mean i, I could just fly off the handle and get myself sued, but why would I want to do that you know, Yeah, of course
3: so <laughs> this, this isn't just a story about an art about the arts this is a true crime book there well, you know, yes it's, it's yes, it's a and what I'm interested in is after the trial, yeah, the trial. And you, mm-hmm. was, I'm assuming that after the trial, you were in the de- depths of sorting through all your material and yeah, and, you know, other stuff. A um, couple of things. Number one, were you working on it full time, and how did you structure your day in terms of tr- what output you wanted to achieve, and mm-hmm. Can you take us through on a practical level you because you interviewed lots of people I mean apart from going to trial you interviewed people separately mm. you know, about this how did you manage the the information like on a practical level what did you do with all your yep. thousand bits of information
1: Yep Yep. Let's Mm -hmm. do the first one. So after the trial and throughout the trial, I was working on this book full-time. So during that time, I just couldn't take on any freelance work. So I had sort of set aside time when I knew I wouldn't be earning much and it it was just going to be the book. So, um, you know, for a couple of months, I just worked full-time on the book and after the trial ended, it was basically – Every single day, from morning to night, that's what I did. I'd get up, I would write, I'd go for a walk, um, I'd come back, I'd write, I'd have lunch, I'd write, um, I'd have dinner, I'd write. Uh, during it's it, it so, Look, put it this way. I stopped drink. I don't know Well, I enjoy alcohol. I'm a journalist. You know, I'd like to have a drink at the end. Of the night. I had to stop. I could not. It's sort of. I just couldn't afford to drink because I can't drink and write. And I needed the energy to keep going. So it was a full-time concern. Um, And um, Sally Heath, my editor, said, you know, make sure that you exercise, you know, go out and get the walk, go out and whatever, work out, go out and do yoga. And that's really important. You have to also be very disciplined about your health because if you sit in front of the computer for hours on end, your, your brain goes fuzzy, There's nothing like getting away from the desk and going for a walk and it's out during the walk that things would happen in my brain or even having, you know, I'd go out with my partner for a walk and we'd talk about it and we'd come up with ideas or whatever. So it was a full-on time of just writing for two months to meet this deadline which was a couple of months after the trial ended. Um, So it was just constant and I was exhausted at the end and I'm very pleased that it was during winter because mm. it was kind of nice being indoors. And it was a yeah. horrible winter that year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> managing the information. Yeah. Um I like to have piles of things. Like yeah. I really I love hard copy. Mm. So I'd have a pile of so all the court transcripts, I'd have a pile of the transcripts of my personal interviews. So I've had these nice little neat neat piles in my very not neat study. That was one thing. But also um, I had a timeline, very, very important when you're talking about a, a, a case like this. So, you know, from the beginning – I kept a timeline, you know, as in of what all the different events that have happened, you know, like 2007, um, you know, uh, photographs taken or whatever. So a timeline of all the events of this case so that I could Mm. keep track of what was going on where and I could easily go back to that timeline and check. And also when you've got a timeline, that's when it becomes evident when there's um, inconsistencies in people's evidence Yes. And what they're saying becomes very clear because, like, hang on, that can't be right because this, this, and this. So a timeline. Um, and I also kept, like, a notebook where I'd try to do a, a, stru- a sort of a structure of the book and work out, well, this chapter is going to be about this. And, you know, so I'd always have this, um, like, a, a structure of how the narrative would go, and that helped me along. Uh, so there's some of the things that I that I did Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a lot of information, but because I'm a journalist by trade, yes. I'm comfortable with dealing with a lot of information.
3: Ah, I mean, but I'm, because I'm you a are, a, sorry, go go, no, well, because you are a journalist, you are used to writing much shorter things, much shorter. Yes. So, was there something you had to switch in your brain to 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 do it this way, where you had to write a whole book?
1: Oh, it was so, it's so nice to have length. It was so <laughs> wonderful. I, I used to get in trouble all the time at the age for writing too much. And even my first date, I think my first date at the Herald song was hilarious. I went out to do a story and I came back and I wrote, it was called 60 centimetres back then, the column, inch, you know, column length. And I, I, I got it sent back to me from the sub editor, saying, 60 centimetres, this is a tabloid newspaper. Cut it back to, you know, 200 words or whatever it was. And <laughs> so I was constantly getting in trouble for writing too much. Um, what helped me in this case was that I had just completed a master's in creative writing and wow. I'd written a 20,000-word creative piece as part of that. So – and I was used to doing feature writing, which – yeah, it was twelve hundred to two thousand words. You're right. It's not. It's, it's not no a any. lot compared to nowhere near one hundred thirty thousand. Yeah. Hmm. Um, what I did was I just. I also remembered what an editor said to me at the age when I was writing slightly longer pieces, and he said, "Just think of it as the different sections as different chapters." Yeah. So I just. I just. I didn't think of the book as a, a book. I just thought it's. All these little different bits and steps that I have to get through. Mm. Um, at the start, I've got to say I did worry. I thought, how am I going to write a how am I going to write an eighty thousand word book? Because that's what mm. I was, you know, commissioned to do. And I thought, like, my God. Um, so I started writing and writing and writing and, and probably focusing too much on those early chapters. But then it became clear there was the problem. In the end, was not not having enough, it was having too much. We had to cut. Yeah, of
3: course. So So, with with that then, um, even though this centres around a court case, which could sound dry, it's so not at all, you also Mm -hmm. bring to life on the page these colourful characters, um, you know, Wendy Whiteley, um, Stephen Nateski, who was one of the people who um, bought the allegedly fraudulent paintings, um, he well, the, well he 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 was the one who was first to kind of make noise that was that it was a fraud, and yeah. he is a colourful kind of like guy who sells and buys art, but he's like a car dealer or something, and yeah. you you can just see him come kind of alive on the page. Same with Andrew Pridham, who is, uh, you know, spent two point five million dollars on the mm. supposedly fake um, mm. painting as well. And if, just by mm. virtue of his silence, you make him come mm. to life. How did you kind of think for some of these characters? Because you could just see Stephen the How did you? What, what notes did you write down, or what? What did you do to kind of? give yourself some kind of technique to then make them really these fully rounded people on, on black and white in black and white.
0: Well,
1: that wasn't really that different to what I was doing at the age because as an arts writer, you're always trying to get detail and bring people to life. And now I have the opportunity to really have fun um, within the, while keeping to the truth, of course. Um, So with all of the, you know, the Win, Wendy Whiteley, Stephen Nostefsky, um, they were part, I met them during a trip to Sydney and that was actually the first bit of the book that I wrote, even though it's not the first bit of the book. That mm. Sydney chapter is what I wrote first. I went, right. and it was that Sydney, cha- the very first chapter I wrote was on, the very first thing I wrote was Steve Nostefsky, that Steve Nostefsky section and I sent that to my editor and said this is what it's going to look like and sound like and she loved it (laughs)
3: Um,
1: and she said that's great keep going so it was to set a tone Um, and I just I just went back to it's almost in my head it's it's because I love reading and I just recalled Mm. My favourite writers, my favourite writers such as Helen Garner and the way that she has dealt with, um, not that I'm in anywhere close to her, you know, I mean, I've sort of grown up on this stuff. I've fed myself all this stuff. I know what I like. I know what I want. I know what kind of writing makes me excited. Um, So I had this sense in my head of how I wanted to create these characters um, and while writing the book I would also, I went back and reread Joe Cinque's Consolation for example. Mm. Yeah. Um I mean good idea and very bad idea because I'm reading it and you know at some point I just felt like oh, what I'm writing is just garbage in comparison. I can never be this good.
3: No, 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 um, no, 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 no Gabriella, because I was reading it and there were some of the court scenes in particular that I actually thought to myself Oh, that must have been what Helen Garner felt like.
1: <laughs> well, yeah well yeah, I did I did when I went back to her books after experiencing the court, I thought my she is so good at encapsulating what the court feels like and at doing it so crisply and with and so sparingly and I still if i you know i I'm not, I'm not this is not false modesty i You know, if I could uh, go back, I'd probably want to be even more sparing. And it was interesting. I read about, um, I've just finished reading or recently uh, A Writing Life by Bernadette Brennan, which is a marvellous book about Helen Garner and her work. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bernadette Brennan writes about when Helen Garner was writing the uh, Farquharson book, um, uh, This House of Grief that at some point her editor said you've got too much detail in there it's not working it's too boring it's too dry and you've got to you know you've got to make this work and it was a really difficult thing for Helen to write well when I read that I thought oh good that's not just me I'm not the only one that finds this hard because of course you know when you're so immersed in it it's very hard to see to sort of step back and yes. um but yeah, I just I just I just went back to my all the all the writers that I loved and looked mm-hmm. at their work and thought about how they do it and, and I just tried to you just try to tell a story to just try to bring the characters to life by focusing on a few different details about the way they look or about the way they sound and then picking out the best quotes which is very much a journalistic trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would always once I had interviewed someone such as Wendy or Steve I'd go back to my computer and in a rush, what I always do is at the end of an interview, just in a rush, write down all the impressions that I've had. It's all, you know, it's all rushed and, but it's just, it comes from the gut and then you can go back to it and fix it up. But you've got to keep that very, that first impression. You've got to get it down quickly or you forget. You forget how you felt.
3: Sure. So now that you're not as immersed in it because it, Done and dusted. What are you working
1: yeah. on now? What's next for <laughs> well, you? Yes. Well, since um oh gee, there was the, after it was published in October last year. There was the publicity, you know, all the all the publicity tour, you know, going mm. to bookshops and all that, which was really intense and really fun. Mm. Uh, basically after I just wanted a break and I started freelancing, doing lots of freelance journalism, which has been fabulous and I've been writing for Good Weekend and um for the age and um and also as a way of um, you know, making making it making some money, not a lot as a freelancer, but just trying to get the coffers up again so that I can then find the time to write another book, find the time and the the, not be so compelled to earn a living that that there's time to write another book, and um, so yes, I've been freelance. I've been doing freelancing, freelancing. Do very you know what days. the next book is about? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, yes, look, there's there is one, and this might change, but when I was doing my writing, my creative writing masters, um, I wrote a twenty thousand word beginning of a of a memoir. And it's about, it's a topic that's really quite current at the moment. Everyone's talking about it, but uh, sort of talking about these ideas, or certainly some other writers have. But just, to, you know, what it's like to be a woman and the um, sort of the, the sort of conventional ideas that are given to you as a woman about how you should live your life and how you should be um, and whether you choose, you know... Motherhood, or whether you choose something else or whatever, and I was playing with these ideas because uh, my background is um, I come from a, a Italian family and and it 's not just Italians, but there are some very kind of idea, set ideas about the way a woman should live her life, and I was playing with these ideas and using my life and not just my life but the things I saw around me to write this book. And uh, it won the Affirm Press Mentorship Award in 2015. And in, in fact, I'm seeing one of the editors at Affirm Press tomorrow so that I can to talk about it uh, because they'd like they have the first dibs at it if I finish it. And I just I need another deadline.
0: <laughs> I'm meeting the
1: editor tomorrow saying okay, she's still interested and like okay, let's let's maybe sort out where this is going and what kind of time frame. So that's an idea. I'd like to finish that. And it's a completely different style and topic to what I've just done. Yeah. Um, I definitely, definitely want to write another book. Uh, maybe it won't be this memoir. Maybe, I mean, I have, there's lots of things to write about in the arts as well. So it might be more of that. But definitely well, you,
3: who knows? There might be another art fraud <laughs> that, that you yeah. can cover. I think you will forever be 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 the expert, the, the go-to person on this particular issue, though, clearly. Um, I know. For for, well, for yes. decades.
1: Yes, well, that's interesting because I was just before, you know, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, I thought I, I feel that now I'm ready to go back to this book and also find out, well, what's happened since, you know, yeah, what's going on now. And, the sequel. <laughs> you know, it might just be a feature. It might just be a feature article, but I feel – Not so emotionally, at the end of the book, I was just so emotionally drained by it um, that I just didn't want to go to that Mm. ever again. It was just so intense. Um, But now that time has passed and I can see it more objectively, I think it's a fascinating area. And yes, it could be an area that I pursue again. It would be be a shame not to, given all of the things I learned in the process of writing this book.
3: And finally before we wrap up what would be your top 3 tips to aspiring writers who want to write who want to because this is non-fiction and it's non-fiction that's, yep. that's that's really come to life in the most amazing way um so to writers who want to write um uh, non-fiction in this kind of creative with this kind of creative approach
1: top 3 tips yeah you can have or one top or two right? yeah
3: yeah. oh okay oh,
1: sorry. Three, right. um i think it's immensely important to read widely and read good creative non-fiction one of the one of the things that i would mm. do when i was duck writing the book or I needed a break would be pick up a copy of the New Yorker and read some of their marvellous writing so reading or read you know I mentioned Helen Garner um I could mention others Chloe Hooper's book The Tall Man is brilliant Um, there are many others read and look at what and and look when you read do it with a sense of how is this why is this working for me what what is it that's that's being done here, what kind of, how is this uh, writer bringing this scene or this person to life? Look at how the descriptions are used um, and, not, and not overused. So I think read and keep a file of the things that you think are, are brilliant. Uh, yeah. And then pra- practice, practice. It doesn't have to be an art fraud case. You could go out and you might want to do a portrait of your next door neighbour for yourself, say, mm-hmm. and practice. Uh, writing, I think reading and writing are crucial okay. um, elements of it, and and keep at it. Keep at it. Mm. If it's your passion, you will do it. Um, it's sort of an obsession. It, it, it sort of can become an obsession, and and it, you don't have you know you can do it. You can do it on the tram home. You know, looking at someone across from you. So. Because it's only by trying it yourself that you can really appreciate the work of people who have done it um, professionally. If you know what I mean, it's in knowing how difficult it is. Well, not necessarily difficult, but you know, trying it and then, yeah, reading and writing. It's as simple as that, really. (laughs) Just commit to it. And on that note,
3: thank you so much for your time today, Gabrielle.
1: Thank you, Valerie.
2: Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash writing. There we go, Gabriela Koslovich.
0: That was a great interview. I'm, I'm, I think Australia is doing amazing things with um, nonfiction at the moment. There's so many oh, yeah. interesting books coming out. And Definitely. about sort of, like that's not necessarily something you would ever think would be a page turner, is it? But it is, oh, and I think is. that that's um, there's so much talent in in taking those stories and making them readable.
2: Yeah, absolutely,
0: absolutely. Mm.
2: Now you're going to be very busy this week, aren't you, Al?
0: I am going to be very busy this weekend. I. I'm working, um, so the, first, the inaugural, as they say, Shohaven Readers and Writers Festival is on this Saturday in Nowra, which is my local area, um, and I've been involved in helping to organise it. Um, there's a children's festival which will take place at Nowra Library and it's, um, we've got Tim Harris coming along to that from Mr Bam Buckles Remarkables, who is what. Widely regarded as giving one of the best, you know, author talks going around at the moment. So I'm really looking forward to seeing him in action and I'm hoping that, you know, heaps of kids will come along for that one. And then in the afternoon at the Children's Festival we have, you know, the amazing Jackie French who um, many of our listeners uh, will at least know that name even if they're from um, overseas because we did that terrific interview with her. um, I can't remember exactly how many episodes ago but if you haven't listened to that one, have a listen because um, there was some amazing writing insight there that is not what you hear every day which is you know what we're after right we want something a little bit different um so that was terrific and she's also on as part of the adult program which is taking place at the um on, on the same day um, she- She's going to be doing uh, an historical fiction panel there. There's a there's a, a really great lineup for that. Catherine McKinnon, who is uh, shortlisted for the Miles Franklin, is going to be uh, in conversation with Mark Whitaker. I am going to be talking to the amazing Melina Marquetta of um, awesome. for yeah. On the Jellicoe Road, et cetera, fame, which I'm really yeah. looking forward to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and we, we have some terrific workshops as well. There's a uh, workshop on writing fight scenes with uh, Alan Baxter, who again uh, might That's be familiar cool. to m- yeah. Well, you know he's he's so good at it, um, and you might remember when I interviewed him many many moons ago. We did have quite the conversation about how to get a. F- fight scene right um Mm. and we're also there'll also be one on and this is the one of the trickier parts of writing romance novels um is how to write sex scenes there's actually a (laughs) workshop with diane blacklock who's one of australia's most popular um best-selling authors in the kind of romance commercial fiction genre and she's going to be talking um she's going to be doing a workshop on exactly how to get that right so look it's a full day and it's going to be pretty amazing and there's an awful lot to do in the run-up to that so i'm really hoping that if uh, any of our listeners are located, you know, anywhere near the south coast, um, that they might come along. And the um, south, coast of, New south, Wales. south, south coast, coast of New South Wales. Maybe
2: for, for some people who might be listening from, you know, Broome or somewhere, give some context to where this is.
0: Uh, so, the south coast of New South Wales is uh, the Shoalhaven area. is about two hours south of Sydney. Um, in a straight line down the line, beautiful um, spot, and where it takes in uh, Jervis Bay, and it takes in some of the most you may have heard of heim's Beach, which is widely regarded as having the whitest sand in the world. Well, that's one of ours, um, but we have 99 other beaches that are just as beautiful as that one. So we're very well supplied for beaches, and now we are also going to be very, very well supplied for books and authors. So um, yes. I really hope that you know some of you guys might come along and, and say hello. I'll be over with the Children's Festival most of the day. Come and say hello. And I'll also be obviously on the stage at the adult um, festival as well. And if you're interested in having a look at the program or buying tickets, you can go to com, and we will put the link in the show notes. And I'd really love to see you there.
2: Yes, because it is really an awesome lineup. So, uh, yeah, mm. fantastic, fantastic. Mm.
0: All right, so where do we find you online now? Uh, you will find me at alisontait.com, com. tcom um, You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me
2: at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter. And, of course, feel free to connect with us on Facebook and join the listener community. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to, go, request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's such an awesome dynamic group of people sharing resources mm-hmm. and stories and motivation and inspiration. So we'd love to see you in there. And, of we course, to- you'll find all of the show notes at so au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.